0: Today we are going to begin what uh, I think we what should be an important time in our church As we begin to now take the the time between the sections of Luke, as Travis teaches through them, to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. So what's going to happen is, whenever Travis is up here, he's going to be continuing through his exposition of Luke to help us to better understand the foundational, essential truths from the person and work of Christ that we need to know as a church. And when I'm up here, I'm going to be working through and expositing this rich epistle from Paul. And I am, I am overjoyed to be able to begin this study with you and for us as a church to take a deep look into this book, because there is so much in this book that will be so helpful for us as a church to help us to live faithfully in the time that I just talked about that we are living in now and in what looks looks honestly to become an even more increasingly difficult future for, uh, for us in this church and for us as, a, as in our country. In this book, in the book of Philippians, we will come to a better understanding of what uh, true humility is. We'll come to a better understanding of what real unity in the church looks like. We will come to see and understand what our identity in Christ is and what it means for us. We'll come to understand what true partnership in ministry looks like. We will see in it examples of how we are supposed to live, what our attitudes should be. Um, uh, We'll see examples of these laid out for us to look and learn from. We will see how to deal with opposition. Uh, We will see and understand how we are to reconcile with one another, how to uh, understand how we are supposed to suffer well. Um, we'll We will have a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is, what it looks like to think as a Christian, to have the mind of Christ. We'll see the importance of giving, the necessity of true Christian contentment, what it means and looks like to persevere in the faith, We'll see how sanctification works, roles and responsibilities there, what it means to be a citizen of heaven while living on earth, and of course, what it's most famous for. We will learn what true joy is, what it looks like, and what it's rooted in. So I'm very excited to move through this book uh, together. Um, This letter from Paul to the church Uh, In Philippi holds great importance for us, based on that list that I just read there, and there's even more than that. And historically, the city of Philippi has a a lot of importance also. Uh, Philippi is named after Philip of Macedon, who really established, he's the one who really kind of established the city, it was there before, but he's the one who established it, gave his name to it. In 356 B.C., Philip was the first great leader of Macedon. And he, he's, so Philip's the one who, who named it after himself. But we don't know much about him because through history, he's been overshadowed uh, by his much more famous son, Alexander, whom we, know, whom we know as Alexander the Great. And although the city of Philippi went under Roman control in 168 B.C., Uh, The city didn't become closely associated with uh, any real important Roman history until about 120 years later in 42 BC when it was the uh, site of the last great battle of the Republican War. Uh, The Republican War, that's the battle where the forces uh, led by Antony and Octavian uh, defeated the army of Brutus and Cassius, the ones who assassinated Julius Caesar, Antony and Octavian rewarded the city by, by giving it the status of a Roman colony. Uh, they settled uh, many veterans from that battle right there in the city. Uh, then uh, 11 years later, after, the, after, um, after that battle was the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, where Octavian, who is also better known as Caesar Augustus, defeated Antony and Cleopatra. And uh, Caesar Augustus took even more than of Antony's now-defeated force, and he settled them in Philippi also. So Philippi rec- recognized itself, uh, even at the time of Paul, as a very important historical city, and the inhabitants there took great pride in, in the fact that they were a Roman community and what had taken place there. However, despite that exciting kind of bit of history... What that city is most known for now, the most important piece of history, the most lasting piece of history, is something that probably seemed completely insignificant at the time, a letter that the relatively small church of the city of Philippi received from a Roman prisoner. Paul the Apostle, imprisoned in Rome, writing a letter to this church that he helped to establish, the established, has dwarfed the significance of what was, at that time, one of the most important wars for a kingdom that now no longer exists. Meanwhile, the message of that letter the letter of uh, the, the book of Philippians continues to minister to and strengthen the citizens of the heavenly kingdom that will never pass away. It is therefore very hard to exaggerate the importance of what we see going on in Acts 16, and you should actually turn there in your Bibles right now. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16, because in, it's here that we see the origin of the church in Philippi with, with one of the most. Uh, important milestones in world history. Again, something that probably didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but is now incredibly significant. So we're going to take just a moment and read also most of Acts 16 together. So Acts 16, starting in verse 6. And they went through, this is Paul and uh, and, and his companions, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we... were And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The police reported these words to the magistrate, magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers and encouraged them, and departed. So we see here in this This uh what is going to be a very long introduction just so you know. We see in these first few verses in Acts 16 that Paul and Silas are joined by Timothy and they are making their way through the cities, uh, delivering to the believers uh, in the cities and the churches in the cities the decisions that have been made by the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. In verses six through eight, here, what we just read, we see that the Spirit is guiding them into specific locations. We are told that the Holy Spirit forbids them from speaking the word in Asia, and then again in Bithynia, and, and they go down so they go down to Troas. We are not told exactly how the Spirit prevents them or, or what that looked like, but the point of these verses is is not for us to understand that, but for us to understand that God is clearly the one who's taking Paul and his companions where he wants them to go. Paul has this this vision of a man from Macedonia asking him to come over and help them. Again, we don't know exactly what what that looked like, but the point is that that they are being Paul and his companions are being supernaturally guided by God. And in verse 10 Um, at this point in verse 10 we see luke the author of acts begin to refer to paul's group with the first person plural pronouns meaning that it's here that luke joins up with paul and silas and timothy the group has an understanding notice that they need to go to macedonia to preach the gospel that's how they understand help come and help us means preach the gospel to them they, they set sail then from Troas across the Aegean Sea. They go to the island of Samothrace and then they land on the edge of Macedonia in the port city of Neapolis. And from there, they walk inland about 11 miles to get to the city of Philippi. And it is here in the city of Philippi where the Gospel is preached on European soil for the first time in history. And it's shortly after that First preaching of the gospel that we begin to see the Philippian church emerging. When Paul enters a city, if you read Acts, he generally goes to the synagogue on the first Sabbath day. But it appears that Philippi does not have a large enough Jewish population to have a synagogue. Apparently, in your city you need ten Men, ten Jewish men, to have a synagogue, and they don't have enough. So instead, they go down to the riverside, which is where Jewish people and Jewish proselyt- proselytes would gather on the Sabbath day if there's not a synagogue. They find some women there, and they, and and it's here that we see the name of the first Christian convert in all of Europe in all of Europe, Lydia. As we see the same God, this is what's cool, the same God who supernaturally guides Paul into Philippi also supernaturally opens her heart to believe the gospel. And she's apparently a wealthy woman. Her and her household become believers and we immediately see the grateful response of one who has truly been born again when she invites them into her house to stay with them. We see the gospel then continue to spread and the church continue to grow as as Paul gets annoyed by a demon-possessed slave girl and casts out a demon and gets thrown into jail. Because even as Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in prison unjustly, they pray, they sing hymns, and then when the earthquake happens and the jailer thinks that they've all escaped and they say that they're there, the jailer is so amazed that they didn't prize their freedom that much. And he comes and asks them, what must, we, what must I do to be saved? And then he is added to the church in Philippi. When the ruling magistrates find out that, that, uh, that they are Roman citizens, they apologize and ask them to leave the city. They say goodbye to Lydia and the other brothers and they leave Luke in Philippi. So the, the weep narrative stops there as they leave Luke. Luke stays in Philippi um, and and this is, this is all taking place in the early 50s, sometime before 53 AD. Luke stays behind in Philippi, and he probably is, is one who helps to establish the church there and to get it going. That means there's a biblical precedent for what I'm doing preaching in Philippians, because when Luke stops, it's for Philippians. That's why when Travis stops Luke, we go to Philippians. Works perfect. <laughs> Um, that's biblical precedent for doing this. Paul returns for a brief vi- visit in Acts 20 during his third missionary journey. During that time uh, in between when Paul Paul's visits to Philippi, he has come into contact and and, and, and much confrontation with the Judaizers. So he almost certainly in Acts 20, warns the Philippian church about the Judaizers when he comes back through. And that's going to help explain later what's going on in Philippians 3. Um, one of the reasons that we know of for Paul's third missionary journey was to collect money from the Gentile churches to help to aid uh, the poor, mostly Jewish uh, church in Jerusalem. And Um, But it seems from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5 that the churches in Macedonia, so the churches in Macedonia, uh, the most prominent ones, Philippi and Thessalonica, those churches are pretty poor and Paul wasn't expecting to receive anything from them for this offering when he comes back through uh, in his third missionary journey. Um, but in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5, through 5, you, you just write it down. You don't have to turn there if you, if you don't want. We, we see Paul say this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord." begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So we can see already, we can see some indications of why the relationship between Paul and these Philippians is so strong um, they, so, so they depart again from, from, from uh, Philippi in Acts 20, and this time they bring along Luke, and they're able to get the offering back to Jerusalem. But shortly after that, Paul is arrested. He spends two years as a prisoner in Caesarea. And, and in the year 59 or, or 60, Paul that is where Paul appeals to Caesar, heads to Rome under guard, uh, still a prisoner of Rome, under guard, heads to Rome, um, Philippians 4.10 seems to indicate that the Philippians knew that this was happening to Paul, that this is where he was headed, that this is, this is going on with him the whole time, and they're concerned about it, but they're not able to do anything about it yet. And, but according to the end of Philippians 4, the church in Philippi was finally able to, to share in Paul's trouble by getting a gift to him in Rome through their faithful brother Epaphroditus. Paul then sends this letter, this letter of Philippians, the book of Philippians, um, back to the church in Philippi around 61 or 62 AD, so about 10 years after, uh, after he and his companions first walked up to that riverside and started preaching the gospel to Lydia. So, given this brief contextual snapshot it is, it, it is easy to, and we start to understand why the letter to the Philippians is the most personal of any of Paul's letters to the churches. This is, it's the most personal letter. It's the one he, he refers to his current circumstances more than in any other letter. He, there's more personal pronoun, pronouns in this letter than in any of his other letters. But just because Paul clearly holds such a high place uh, in his heart for the Philippians, does not mean that they were not that there were no issues in the church. That's not what that means. It seems that um, there there were actually several issues in the church. It seems that the Philippian uh, pride that comes with uh, from being such an important Roman city is still clinging to them a little bit. Possibly leading to some of the issues that they seem to, be, uh, seem to be having in understanding their Christian identity, which may also be causing what, some, what seems to be some, some problems with Christian unity and a failure for them to reconcile. They're also more problems, they're also suffering. They apparently need help responding rightly to opposition, they're in danger of false teaching. There must be uh, there there must also be some sort of per, uh, pervading kind of sense of discouragement within the church because of because of how prominent the message to stand fast and contend is throughout the book. We tend to think about Philippians as the as the epistle of joy. And, and, and we should. We're right to do that because it is in this book that Paul uses uh, words for joy with greater fre- frequency than he does anywhere else. He uses them 16 times in this le- letter. But, but actually what is even more remarkable is the frequency with which Paul, uh, Paul uses the Greek word that's commonly translated as think, Phroneo, He uses that 10 times in this book and only 13 times in the rest of his letters combined. So, so this points to, to the fact that there's surely something that the Philippians need to understand when it comes to their mindset, when it comes to how they're thinking. So th- there is indeed much to commend in the Philippian church, but there is also much to Correct. And the way Paul handles this throughout the letter, that's going to be a joy for us to unpack as we move through this book together. And and you can start to see some of the foundations for these things being laid by Paul even right here in the two verses we're looking at today. uh, Philippians 1, 1, and 2. Just in the greeting and the salutation. In these first verses, we can see a a definite theme that Paul will refer to and that he will expand on throughout the book. And that that theme will kind of be the main overarching point uh, for our outline for the rest of this morning. A right understanding of, of this truth is foundational for understanding and experiencing the type of joy that Paul is continually referencing throughout the letter. And that uh, in that heading, that understanding is, is all about who we are. Who we are. For the first point under, your, under that heading, you can put the word slave. Slave. So if we look at Philippians 1, 1, and 2 again, Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself as the author and the fact that Timothy is with him. Paul and Timothy. Timothy isn't the co-author and you can tell immediately that because Paul and right away in verse 3 switches to, to first person. Um, just him, first person singular. Uh, but, but remember that Timothy was with Paul when he visited Philippi and when Paul began to establish the church there. So he is well known and he is loved by them. So it's kind of like what Paul is doing here is he's establishing Timothy as a credible witness with them for everything he is about to share in this letter. It's, it's also interesting to notice that Paul here does not assert his apostleship. Uh, other than he, he doesn 't say Paul an apostle, other than the letters to the Thessalonians and his, and, and his letter to Philemon, uh, this is the only letter where he does not do this right, there, there are probably a few reasons for this, but chief among them would be that there is an understanding that that he has no need to, to, to assert his uh, apostolic authority with the Philippians because because he has confidence that they're going to listen, and it's kind of the same thing with the Thessalonians. But in in those letters, in those letters in the First and Second Thessalonians, um, Paul simply introduces himself. And those who are with him, he he gives no title for himself. So so this draws it should draw as we're comparing it to the rest of Paul's letters. This draws a lot of attention to the title that he does give himself in Timothy. This this very first verse is is actually it's much different than how you would normally uh, see how, how you would normally expect to see this. Anyone with any type of familiarity with the Bible would probably think that the first verse would read something like this, St. Paul and Timothy to the believers in Philippi. But instead, it it essentially says, slave Paul and Timothy to the saints who are in Philippi. The word translated as servant here is the word doulos, doulos. We talk about often meaning slave, not servant. It means slave. It doesn't mean servant. Paul is using it to refer to himself and to Timothy. In Romans and Titus, Paul Paul also claims uh, the title of doulos in in his greeting uh, for himself. Um, But there he also clearly identifies himself as an apostle. So this is the only opening greeting and salutation where Paul gives himself the primary title of slave. Slave. This is the only time He does it. That, that book that you received if you came to the conference last Sunday night, uh, Slave by John MacArthur, uh, that, that's addressing this issue. What, what slave means. Uh, translating this word as servant or bond servant is a bad translation. But we do it in our English Bibles because of the negative connotations that the word slave has in our uh, country. Some people make the argument that the Jewish understanding of this word would have been different than slave, that there'd still be an understanding for the servants, with, that they have certain rights and privileges and possessions that a ser- servant might have. But Paul's completely Gentile audience in Philippi would have no doubt exactly what the word doulos was. They'd have no doubt Slaves, douloi, were were so common in Philippi and the rest of the Roman society that there would be no way that any of the original readers would have thought for a moment that it meant anything other than a person who is owned by another person. One who is completely subservient with no rights of their own. The, The slave in the Roman Empire was one who was owned by another and they would have no doubt that this is what Paul was referring to. The slave and the servant are different. They're different words. Actually, the word for servant is also in verse 1, and it's a different word. A servant was more like an employee. Was someone who owned some of their own stuff. They had, they had certain rights. They were generally hired for some specific task, and they had their, their home that they could return to when the task was completed. But a slave owned nothing. Nothing that passed through his hands actually belonged to him. A slave was completely dependent on his master for a livelihood. The master was the, was the one who provided food and shelter for the slave. A slave could go nowhere and do nothing apart from the will of his master. And this is how Paul refers to himself and to Timothy, and and that's all he refers to himself as. This helps because we know that humility is is a key theme throughout the book of Philippians. It seems likely that Paul has been made aware of some lack of humility on the part of at least some in the church of Philippi, it is along these lines that Paul brings up examples of, of himself and other men and, and the famous hymn of Christ in Philippians 2, 5-11. All of those thing to, things to admonish the church to humility. Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves right off the bat so that everyone listening as the letter is read will know where they must also fall. If Paul and Timothy are slaves, then of course we are also. Everything will change dramatically for you as you read and hear this book, if you come to it with the understanding that you are a slave. This is the beginning of true humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. And humility isn't thinking less of yourself, and it's not, as many people say, just thinking of yourself less. That's not. That's also not true humility. True humility for the Christian comes when you think rightly of yourself. That comes with your identification of yourself as a slave, which, granted, does not sound so humbling, as it sounds depressing at first glance. And it might be if it weren't for the fact of who the Master is. Slaves of Christ Jesus is what Paul says. Our Master, our Owner, is Christ Jesus. The one who is to have final say over everything that we do with our lives is our gracious Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. The one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows and wants what is best for us and can be trusted even when it doesn't make sense to us. Our master, the one who is in charge of our livelihood, is Jesus. That means it is him who is responsible for meeting our needs. He is the one who dictates where we go and what we do. We've already seen this in Paul in Acts 16. Again, we don't, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but Paul went exactly where he understood that Christ wanted him to go. Where the Spirit of Jesus led, it says. Sometimes it was more obvious than others, but Paul was confident that his life didn't belong to him anymore, and he was to give himself for sharing the gospel and strengthening the church. Sometimes it was clear to him that the Spirit of Jesus was guiding him somewhere. Sometimes it wasn't as clear. But as a slave of Christ, he knew he was never going to ask the question, what do I want to do? Where where do I want to go? We are to be constantly asking questions like, what does God want me to do with His energy that He has given me? What does Christ want me to do with His time that He has generously allowed me to have while I'm on this earth? What do I do with with, with His money that He has put in my stewardship? We are to recognize ourselves as slaves. If If it were possible to earn your freedom for being a good slave, then Paul would be the first to do so. But once you understand who your master is, only a a fool would want freedom freedom, rather than being a slave for this good master. So you can see, can't you, how once you get past the, the negative connotations that are associated with the word slave today, and you truly understand just how wonderful it is to have Jesus as your master instead of yourself or anyone else, how this would lead naturally to the ability and the desire to truly, rejo- to truly rejoice. So that's point one in who we are. Point one in who we are. We are slaves. We are slaves. Point two in who we are is we are saints. We are saints. Again, this is odd because Paul uses what would seem to be the much less exciting identifying title of slave and gives it to himself and he reminds the philippians that they are all saints. Saint is not a reference to some super high and exalted special christian the way that the, the catholics use it. On the contrary, on the contrary, in fact, saint is actually the most common word that paul uses when he is addressing believers in the early church. This is the word uh, this is the word hagios. Or, or holy one. Now, our, our natural reaction, our natural reaction, if we really understand humanity and total depravity, our natural reaction to, to, the, to the term saint being so, so prevalent throughout the New Testament, we, we, we should have an understanding or we should be thinking that that, that term shouldn't even exist except for in the realm realm of mythology because the Bible is absolutely clear that there is no one who is holy except for God alone. No sinful, rebellious human should be allowed to ever call himself a saint. And again, there's truth to that. No, No person in and of themselves can ever rise up and become a saint. The Catholic Church essentially Uh, says that sainthood is earned as exceptional people throughout history prove themselves to be saints through their devoted lives and by performing miracles but notice what paul says here he says your being a saint does not come from who you are or what you have done but who you are in who you are in says to all the saints in christ jesus You are a saint, you are a holy one because of your position in Christ Jesus, because of your union with Christ. He makes you holy. His righteousness imputed to you. You now hold the position of holy one because of who you are in Christ. Nothing you have done, nothing you have done, only what He has done and what He has made you. And this is what that little church in in Philippi was made up of. They were not a bunch of, despite how it might have looked, not a bunch of poor people suffering and facing opposition. They were saints. Those who have been given the status of, those who have been given positional holiness through their union with Christ. That is who they are. That is their identity. Notice what else it says about them. It says, it says this, it says they are saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So we call this letter the letter of Paul to the Philippians. That's, that's what it says right there at the top of my page in my Bible. That, that's the way uh, it's titled in a lot of our Bibles, and that helps us maybe a little bit to distinguish it. But that title in your Bible is not inspired. And that is not the way that Paul understands his letter. This is Paul's letter to the saints in Christ. Those whose identity is in their union with Christ who just happen to live in Philippi. There is instruction from Paul even in this even in this form remember the city of philippi was very proud of their roman status and the privileged role they played in roman history that was that was part of i mean we saw that in romans 16 that was part of the owners of the slave girls their their charge against paul was these men are jews they are disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as romans to accept or practice that's also the reason why uh, they. It's also their high esteem for Rome is also the reason why they were so terrified when they discovered that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and that they had beaten them and thrown them in jail unjustly. They That why they apologized to them and released them. Don't see governmental apology often. So Paul slips this fact into his introduction. They, they are those who have been made holy because they are in Christ Jesus, and they, they, they've been made holy because they are in Christ Jesus, and they are those who are at or in the city of Philippi, physically located there. Their identity was Saint in Christ and their location was Philippi. The city has nothing to do with who they truly are. It just happens to be the part of the world that they have been placed in by a sovereign God. This issue is at the root of a lot of what we talked about at the conference last week. The main issue with social justice is where do you understand your identity to lie? You need to understand that if you are in Christ, then the term Coloradan does not really describe anything important about you at all. It's merely the specific location in which you exist, the name on your driver's license, the the state that gets your tax money. If you are in Christ, the term American also describes nothing of real value about you. It's actually an even less specific reference to your location, It's the country your passport has on it on the outside. Being an American may mean that you have some certain privileges that others might not have, and it might explain some of your behaviors and the activities you enjoy. But it's not about who you are. When you are in Christ, being an American is little more than having an understanding about the location that God has placed you the culture that he has put you in to live out your union in Christ. It merely means that America or Colorado is the place that God has put me. It's the place where I am to demonstrate where my true citizenship actually lies. That's what should be seen in me. We need to keep this distinction clear. If you are in Christ, then you need to know without a shadow of a doubt that the person living in some other country, the person who who doesn't see what's so great about democracy, who doesn't even know what the U.S. Constitution is, the the one who, while watching the Olympics on TV, roots passionately against the United States, the one who would actually even pick up arms if they had to, and go to war to defend their country, even if it was against the U.S. We need to know that if that person has been made holy by God through regeneration and brought into union with Christ, that is the person who is just like you. That person is closer to you than a brother your neighbor, your friend at work who sees eye-to-eye with you on every per- political discussion, the one who, who likes all the same things as you, who votes the same way that you do and seems to hold all of the same values, watches the same shows, the guy who really gets what's wrong with America and how it, how it needs to be fixed. He, he maybe even has that God, family, country type of motto that he lives by, He'll even mock atheism. He goes to church maybe even. Maybe he's even active at his church. But he has never really actually come to know Christ. He has never actually submitted himself to the gospel and turned to Christ in faith and repentance. That person is nothing like you. Nothing. To the degree that you don't understand this, that we don't understand this that this sounds off to us is the degree to which we have become far too comfortable in our temporary earthly home it's the degree to which you have a deficient understanding of who you are in Christ of how little you truly think of your identity who who would ever say i'm a saint I have been made holy before God, the Creator of the universe, through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has taken all my sin upon Himself and He has made me clean. He has imputed unto me the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ that that should do nothing but stand as a symbol for how truly wretched and deserving of wrath I am. But He has taken that righteousness and given it to me. And now I stand justified before him. I have been adopted as his son. I'm a co-heir with Christ. He has redeemed and kept a people for himself. And I am blessed beyond measure, a recipient of nothing but grace upon grace because he has included me among those people. Who could ever say that? and then tack on to the end, plus I'm an American. How could you possibly have any type of understanding that that adds anything to that at all? How can we become so deceived where we would ever think that that is something actually important to who we truly are? You are in Christ. Where you live, what race you are, what family you've been born into, job you have, all that's just the setting in which you live out the unspeakable blessing of your union with Christ. Our union with Christ is the magnificent reality that defines our lives don't let the setting of where and how you are to live out this unbelievable reality have any type of controlling influence on you at all, ever. So that's point two, we are saints. Who we are, we are saints. Who we are, point three, we are part of a local church. We are part of a local church. So continuing with the thought that our union with Christ is shared, is a shared union with the body of believers, and it manifests itself as a body of believers moving together in unison, each part doing its work with Christ as our head. In spite of everything that we've seen already, most commentators actually agree that, that the most unique feature of Paul's salutation in Philippians is the fact that he mentions overseers and deacons in it. it They're they're the ones who are with all the saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. This is the only time Paul ever does this in any of his epistles. So it needs to be looked at. Why does he do it? So so Paul's not saying that there are saints that are there in Philippi and there are also overseers and deacons and that they're not the same group. Uh, the, The understanding with the word with, the Greek word soon, indicates Togetherness, or fellowship, or harmony—they are here. They are here. The overseers and deacons are not being singled out as other than the church, but are within the church, yet are a distinguishable part of the whole. Overseers and deacons are the two offices of church leadership. The word uh, episkopos, which which is translated as overseer, is the same church office as elder. It's also used, it's often used interchangeably with that term. It is a compound word that comes from two words that mean over and watchman, watchman or observer. The word for deacon simply means servant, diaconus. But in, but in this case, when it is used alongside of one of the words that is used for the office of pastor and elder, it is clearly in reference to the church office of deacon. So the name implies then that this is the office that comes alongside of the elders and serves in a unique way with the elders. There are a number of different reasons for why Paul has has probably done this, has put these two offices here in his greeting, but clearly he wanted the church at Philippi to be thinking about the offices of the church Most commentators also agree that Paul is recognizing the special role that elders and deacons of the church must have played in organizing and planning and and, and moving the church and getting Paul whatever gift that they were able to to get to him that he's thanking them for at the end of chapter 4. But Paul is also almost certainly thinking of the good of both the church as a whole and the leadership when including these two titles in his salutation. They need to know, these people, the Philippians, need to know the structure of the church. And the leaders need to be encouraged to do their job. There's there's an issue in chapter 4 coming up that we'll get to eventually that requires specific shepherding care, leadership, and authority. And there's also the fact that that in order to deal with the opposition and the threat of false teaching that is addressed in this letter, a strong church structure needs to be in place. Paul is drawing attention to these men, the, the overseers and the deacons, because he wants to elevate them. He wants the church to look to them for direction to know what they, uh, to know what they are watching out for, or to know that they are watching out for them. He wants them to know that he has confidence in them. This is, this is another possible reason why he didn't identify himself as an apostle, at the beginning. He wanted to remind them that they have overseers who are watching over them and he wants to elevate their ministry in the church. The church in Philippi has been around for about 10 years now by the time they're receiving this letter and Paul has confidence in the structure of the church. It's probably he and Luke who put together some of those men who are in those places, who are in those positions. We also have to point out that there are, that there are a plurality of overseers, a pl- plurality of elders, even here. This is always under the understood structure of the church, and that's why we have a plurality of elders here at Grace. But I also want to point out that from just this one word, overseer, that local church membership is implied. Because to be an overseer... It means that you have a responsibility to keep watch over someone. Implicit in the job description is the understanding that he must know that he has a responsibility to keep watch over someone and who that person is. We were going to go to Ezekiel 33, but there is no time for that. But write that down. You can go and read in Ezekiel 33, get an understanding of of the seriousness of which God expects his watchmen to take their role. It's, it's sobering if you're in a position of leadership. There's a responsibility that they have that were held, uh, they were held accountable. Accountable for those who are under their care, under their watch. They're held accountable if they fail to warn them about anything. The overseers in the church at Philippi are held to the same high standard. So that combination of words... In fact, just using the term is just using the term, just calling them overseers, is almost an imperative to the elders to take their job seriously, because they will give an account for those under their watch. And so, are the elders at this church? Um, the, at the, uh, the elders at this church in, in Philippi, the elders at our church, the elders at every church, hopefully. They, they understand this responsibility, or they should. That's how seriously we as elders are supposed to take this responsibility. The same seriousness as the watchman has in Ezekiel 33. There is, there is an appropriate weight, and I, I might say a, a godly type of terror that causes us as elders to look out over our members to listen to the kinds of things that they are saying, and then to adjust our own lives and our own plans and our own time and our own schedule based on what we see and hear. Because we know that we have a stake in your sanctification and in protecting you from false teaching. Now, is this type of thing Is that type of responsibility even possible apart from meaningful church membership? The the, the kind of thing that might make some of you uncomfortable, where we take some time to find out about you and hear your testimony, get to know you better, involve you in the church more, get you into a position where you're experiencing mutual accountability within the church truly living, where you're working out your union in Christ the way it's supposed to be, in which it's your soul identity. Surely the one who is an overseer cannot be held to account for the person who just slips in and out of the church every week, only taking what they want from the service, really kind of letting it be about them and what they want, what's best for them, kind of shying away from interaction with the elders or anyone who they don't see a personal advantage in getting to know. That is not being a part of the church. That is just using the church for yourself. You have taken God's good gift of the church where His people come together to disciple one another and help each other grow into Christ-likeness, Where he's done that for his own praise and his his own glory. And you've taken that and made it about you. The New Testament is clear that you are to have overseers keeping watch over you if you are a Christian. It defines, that's what defines these men as, as holding a particular church office. And you have. No way to submit to, the, to, to God's design for you to be under the care and watch of qualified men who hold the office seriously if you are not a member of a church. You have no way to take that seriously. So, point three, who we are. We are part of a local church. And when we say part... We mean a member, part of uh, a local church. Elders, deacons, members. This is what the body of Christ looks like. All the parts of the body coming together, fulfilling their role within the church with Christ as our head. If you're content to just show up and try and take what you want from church, disseminate the teaching for yourself, pick out the stuff you like, leave the rest, never really doing anything to help serve the body in any way. That is not the definition of being part of the body. That is the definition of a parasite on the body. So, what we are, who we are, we are slaves of Christ. We are saints of in Christ, and because we are both of those things, we also are and must be a part of a local church. And this, what was going to be a final long point, is now just going to be the conclusion. The final point will just, just really serve as the conclusion to the sermon, and and so I might go into a little more uh, detail with it next week. But the common greeting in a letter in, in Paul's time. Uh, was the word chiron, which which means greetings. And Paul would and, and Paul what Paul would do is he would change that word to a, to the similar sounding word Kara, which is which means grace. So in verse two when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's he's taking that normal greeting, something that sounds like it, and he's and he's putting his theology into it. This is a reminder about what is amazingly true about every single Christian. Grace to you and peace. The grace of God has come in the person of Christ, providing a way of salvation. And it has appeared also again to us by opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel, opening our hearts to receive it the same way it did with Lydia and it appeared again to us so that, and, and to, to regenerate our hearts so that we can believe the Gospel. And the order of those two is significant. Grace to you and peace. It is because of this grace of God that has been given to us. Because of that, that we are actually able to know and understand what peace is. Peace with God no longer his enemy, but his Son. This greeting is a summation of Paul's theology in the Gospel, and it is an appropriate way to close our sermon. And notice once again that this this grace and peace comes from God, both from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace do not exist apart from them, and they are an ever-present reality in those who are in Christ. So just notice one time, just notice here in, in these two verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned three times. Three times, that's no accident. It's, it's to remind us of the fact that everything that we are, everything important about us is completely wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Everything about who we are is in of, by, for, or from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Christian, make every effort to make sure you do not lose sight of this glorious truth who you are, who you truly are. Every sin every worry, every problem can only cause concern in you to the degree that you have lost sight of who you really are as a slave of Christ who is simultaneously a saint in Christ, saved to be an active part of the body of Christ, who has been given grace and peace from Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Just the unbelievable amount of truth, conviction that can come from just a couple of verses that are quickly skipped over by us so many times. Father, I pray that uh, we will be a church who only sees our identity in our union with Jesus Christ. And you would help us to be discerning as all of this stuff in the world, even this afternoon, comes in to start clouding that and causing us to think about things that are really no importance, no value, that really overall have nothing to do with us. I pray that we would live in this truth and that we would be a church that models it. And that's obvious to each of us in here as we hold each other accountable and to those who visit and see it also. In Jesus' name, amen.